This is Geek Cab for Saturday, August 25th, 2018, and we are back. I'm so excited to be here today. We have got, as usual, as mostly, as frequently featured on this show, we have our guest host. I am too tired today. Man, we need to just stop this and I can back up and redo that redo that intro. Whoa. I am out of it. I made Whoa. a mistake. It's Whoa. my fault. Are you doing the Spanish Inquisition? We'll, we'll come back in and we'll, we'll do it again. <laughs> yeah. I, I need to get an aviator's hat for that, an aviator's cap. I thought oh. you were experimenting with pauses and changing up your cadence to see if you could make your opening a little uh different i was roll i was gonna roll with it until you said something i i was experimenting with being completely out of it i blame youtube it's youtube's fault um like 20 minutes before the show i was really really bored and i just wanted to do something and i made the mistake i was searching terms related to physics like i searched for acceleration frame of reference and watched a short video on uh, acceleration frames in physics and how they deal with relativity and stuff. Very short six minute video kind of introduces the topic. And then I searched for um, the Fibonacci sequence and the golden ratio. And I watched like a seven minute video on that. And that just totally, um, it's gonna sound like I'm high. I'm not high, I don't do drugs. I've never done drugs. But the video on the Fibonacci sequence was completely mind-blowing it was just absolutely bizarre how many different places the golden ratio shows up and so my brain was immediately taken out of like talk show mode and discussing what's going on mode and put into the whoa what does that mean i wonder how that means and then the the thought even crossed my mind for a few seconds like Okay, so all of these things that are popular, that are beautiful, that are moving, they all are built around the Fibonacci sequence, like architecture, pillars in a building, and people's faces, people with really attractive faces uh, are built around the golden mean, and shells, and flowers, and uh, beautiful paintings. And so the thought crossed my mind is, what, what can you do if you can make really attractive things that draw in people, that compel people, like the Mona Lisa built around the Fibonacci sequence. Even your DNA uh, shapes itself when you look at the molecules according to the golden ratio. It's just really bizarre, and you nobody listening to this is going to understand what I mean unless you go look at like a video on YouTube about it and so you can understand it. I apologize for discussing things that are far, far, far outside what we normally discuss and may be a bit confusing. But the thought I had that crossed my mind is how, how can you like apply the Fibonacci sequence or the golden mean to stories and to literature to make them more attractive to an audience and obviously that was a really blue sky really weird thing to say it's a combination of sleep deprivation a combination of uh, absolute boredom and a combination of of accidentally taking twice the medication i was supposed to um so that's why the that's our best new tagline for the show now yeah I took, geek gab i took twice the medication i was supposed to <laughs> That explains so so much about the show. Um, I like the I like the the discussion of the golden ratio and the and Fibonacci sequence. It's it's really interesting because I think the way it shows up in art and architecture, I think it's I I don't think that someone looked at it and said, "Oh, this is the ratio. I'm going to do things by that." It, it seems to me that. It's a it's a natural phenomenon, and things that are beautiful adhere to that golden ratio. Do you know what I mean? It 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 doesn't have to be deliberate. You make something beautiful, and and just it's one of those things that that it's like symmetry. Symmetry is beautiful. Yes, 
It's it's one of those properties. It just happens to be part of what beauty is. And, and it's sort of a super symmetrical structure. So if you take something that's, that is perfectly symmetrical and so it's, um, you know, it, it's beautiful. And then within that symmetry, if you can imagine a line down the middle of a paper and then um, smaller lines, and you can move those smaller lines up or down, and then you'll have like smaller segments in them and you can move those left or right. If the arrangement of all of those symmetrical pieces in a larger pattern follows the golden ratio, follows the, you know, this number, um, that will make something that is more appealing. And it, it crosses my mind now. Wow, we are way, way out there. No, it crosses my mind now. Uh, diversity in comics, when he's talking about comic heroes, he points out um, heroic proportions, that when you're drawing a comic hero, the head is much, much bigger than it would normally be on a human body. That if you had a person in real life who had a head that big, it would look kind of freaky. But in comics, when you're drawing the, the pictures of superheroes, it looks perfectly natural. And I'm wondering if the proportions he describes for the torso of how uh, tall or short the torso is, how long or short the legs are, how bigger or smaller the head uh, is, I'm wondering if all of those proportions themselves don't fall into the golden ratio or the Fibonacci sequence, if that underlies the heroic proportions of comic book uh, illustrations. Uh, you, you may maybe on the page. It may be either a panel or or the page or both. Yeah. Uh, it it may. I I'm willing to bet that you'll find quite a few pages that you consider. Oh, that's a good piece of artwork, and it may have that magic ratio in it. Yeah. Uh, I, I, your oversized head thing reminds me of another thing that I saw. In and we're gonna keep going out there. And <laughs> in Italy, I saw. In person, Michelangelo's David, the famous sculpture. Yes. And I mentioned this a long time ago, but the hands in particular are done perfectly uh, for, for what is probably the most difficult thing to sculpt or draw in the human body. He, he did the hands perfectly. They're beautiful. I mean that. But they're also oversized. Like the the hands and the feet and the limbs, they're kind, they're slightly oversized. When you get up there, you're like, wow, those are, those are those those hands are you know almost as wide as his head, that sort of thing. It was deliberate. It was it, it was a deliberate choice to sculpt it that way, and uh, it's part of uh, letting him get the detail that he wanted on the hands, um, and it's also very beautiful. Um. There is a lot of beauty in the world, and I, I love, um, and, and I don't say this in the in the context of, uh, just in the context of people who have you know pretty faces. I mean, in terms of what human beings make with art, with architecture, with poetry, with music, there is a lot of beauty in the world, and there is a lot of creativity that can create something beautiful, and it is. Uh, sad and depressing to me how far we have fallen from that ideal of creating something that is beautiful, creating a beautiful building that you can look at and just say, wow, that, that is so well done. That is gorgeous. And, and the, to take this back to the golden sequence, buildings like uh, uh, the Cathedral de Notre Dame de Paris, uh, there's like nine Notre Dame cathedrals, so got to be specific, um, is built according to the golden ratio. So they're making a beautiful building that was their goal to make a building that when you looked at it it was pleasing to the eye and beauty great beauty real beauty things that achieve that level um evoke in us a sense of awe they evoke in us the sense of wonder they evoke in us the sense of uh spiritual quietness and beauty connects us with this idea that there is something greater than just ourselves. It touches people, it moves people on a level so fundamental that you won't even notice it. It's really, really strange to sit back and analyze it or hear it analyzed because it just happens. And that's one of the things I think that uh, we've fallen off in the West is by getting away from beauty, we get away from things that evoke that sense of awe, of grandeur, of connection with 
something that's bigger, that connection with God, with spirituality. Um, and it is, uh, it is tragic. Um, and we, I mean, there are a lot of things I can talk about, about this subject. It's one of my, one of my passions that I, I ran about on Twitter a lot, but, um, I think that the replacement of beauty with ugliness, the replacement with grand, of grandeur with brutality, the replacement of a celebration of what is noble and uplifting with a celebration of what is base and debasing um, is one of the worst things that has happened to uh, Western civilization. So... Um, I tend to agree. Uh, it's worth noting that the chat, as soon as you mentioned comics, just completely went on that track for the last five employees you were ranting. Uh, they're they're mentioning uh, this new cartoon funded by Crunchyroll. Oh yeah. Did you hear about this? It, it, I, <laughs> I don't remember the name of it, but Crunchyroll's. Uh, for those of you who are uninitiated, and also me, I had to find this out. It's uh, High Guardian Spice. High High Guardian Spice. Apparently, this was uh, just some silly Tumblr webcomic, and and Crunchyroll decided when it decided to fund its own anime. It, you know, doing the Netflix thing, doing the uh, Amazon thing. We're going to fund our own content. They decided to fund some, you know, just typical pink hair Tumblr. A cartoon, and uh, yeah, the usual folks are up in arms for probably good reason. It's uh, it's got that that you know that noodly arm CalArts uh, Tumblr style art, and I saw a couple of panels of the web comic. I I sure hope the I sure hope the writing improved because there isn't a single joke on the page. But I think that's along the lines of what you're talking. We get. More the same. Yeah, I, I'm frustrated. I mean, I'm not going to get all up in arms about it, but I mean, at this point, it's more of an eye roll. Yeah, it's just more ugliness. As soon as you reach a certain point where everybody has abandoned making good stuff and they're making deliberately ugly stuff, you're just like, don't you even understand what's going on? I don't um, even I don't even think of it from from that perspective. Just from the perspective of of customers, I, I haven't watched anime in a long time, but I know I know the kind of stuff that anime people like. That there's there's extremely popular genres. If you want to if you want to get that huge audience of anime, fund the fund an American Dragon Ball, fund a, a Western Naruto, right? Get those guys in. You know, yeah, they're get- huge huge fan base. What are people on Crunchyroll watching, right? They're, you know, they're they're gonna watch their their show shonens. They're gonna watch um, if it's gonna. I mean, you there is a magical girl category, uh, but it isn't Tumblr. It's it's Sailor Moon, it's girls in mecha battle suits, that sort of thing. You it's just a need, weird decision. You need to if you have an audience, if you built an audience, and you want to keep your audience, you need to give your audience what they actually want. Um, instead of trying to give them what you want them to have. Um, and so, yeah, I think you're right. I hadn't thought about it on that level, but you're absolutely right. Uh, trying to feed your audience something which is completely anathema, completely alien. You know, it it would be like, uh, Better Homes and Gardens, right? They run all of those uh, articles about how to make your life, how to make your house beautiful, how to arrange pillows, how to pick a great comforter for both warmth and stylishness in your room how to make a good thanksgiving dinner okay better homes and gardens um all of a sudden started publishing um you know hardcore brutal bloody cyberpunk stories in their magazine right it it would be insane because that's not what the audience for better homes and gardens is there for So, yeah, I think you're right about that. Yeah, um, I, that's our new tagline, by the way, uh, <laughs> Gab. Brutal cyberpunk homes and gardens. <laughs> when you're making and discarding taglines, 
at a, at a rate probably I'm guessing far greater than most most shows. Um, brutal cyberpunk homes and gardens. Um, so <laughs> I uh, I had a couple things I wanted to talk about today. I'm trying to. I am attempting to come up with a way to relate them to the theme of the show as thus far um, as thus far established, but I, I haven't really come up with one. It's just a funny little anecdote. But before we get to my funny little anecdote, how was your week, man? It's been pretty good. I am broadcasting live from a local gaming convention called Dragonflight. So it was a bit of a last-minute thing. That's why I didn't say anything about it on the show before. But apparently, uh, we've got a show going on for about 39 years, and it's a small local convention. All the local board game players are out here. They've got a small number of dealers, tons of games to be played. Um, I've run into a few uh, local gaming friends while I was here. So are... Are you staying at the hotel, or are you just at the hotel because that's where the Wi-Fi is? Yeah, I'm. I, I'm actually staying at the hotel. It makes things easier. See, I, this was actually my thought, and I apologize. This is the first thought when you said the city you're in. Um, is that okay? Can we say the city? Yeah, I'm in. I'm in Bellevue. Bellevue. Okay. I played a lot of Shadowrun, and. I have come to realize after driving to Seattle and, and hanging out with Seattle uh, with you guys at um, Penny Arcade Expo that the way that Shadowrun's rule books described Seattle wasn't so much deliberately misinformative. It was that they left out so much that it just absolutely did not let you know what the real Seattle area was like. So like, the Redmond Barrens, right? This vast wasteland of concrete that um, is absolutely destroyed. It's one of the worst places in Seattle. Um, when you go to Seattle, Redmond is like this big, hilly, foresty, suburby place, right? Yeah, it's it is. I mean, uh, up until Microsoft, uh, uh, over the past 30 years, Microsoft turned it from a bunch of farms and forests to kind of a suburb, um, right? You, you'd have to you'd have to extrapolate really far to go from a a suburb to a concrete wasteland that's part of Seattle. Yeah, but in specifically in regards to Bellevue, what my thought, the impression I get from Shadowrun, it's like, oh, Bellevue isn't that just a really short drive from? Isn't everywhere in the Seattle area a really short drive from every other where in the Seattle? And I realize that's inaccurate, but that was my thought. It was like you're in Bellevue and you're taking a hotel, isn't that? Oh yeah, that was from Shadowrun. Oh, that was from Shadowrun. It, it really. Yeah, I'm a I'm a very short drive from Seattle. Uh, account once you account for traffic. But uh, it's not. I mean, you have to cross a lake to get there. Uh, I'm, I'm surprised. I'm surprised Shadowrun didn't really go into the geography of the area because the uh, geography of the area is kind of implies. Uh, a, there's a lot of implications for the geography. I mean, it is gorgeous geography, but it's absolutely it's mountainous, and there's a big lake there, and all this other stuff that's really interesting. And and what Shadowrun gave the uh, impression of was that it was LA. See, LA actually is in the real world what I thought Shadowrun was, or what I thought Seattle was because of Shadowrun. LA is like flat. I mean, yeah, you've got the big mountain, and on the other side of that is quote unquote the valley, but all of the other stuff is just flat, and there's long grids of streets and houses and people everywhere. And then palm trees and parks here and there. But but that's what it made Seattle seem like. And Seattle is absolutely like the very opposite of that. It is the opposite of L.A. as far as, you know, it's big, it's mountainous, it's got, you know, water everywhere. But Shadowrun made it seem like it was L.A. That's what I thought it was for, you know, what, 20 years, 27 years since I started playing Shadowrun. Yeah, I, I, I had really no concept of what Seattle was till I, I moved to the area. And you know what? I, I'm shocked that the writers of Shadowrun didn't really look into the geography and, and think about it. There are a lot of really interesting things you could have done with the geography of, Shadowrun, uh, of Seattle that they didn't do in Shadowrun. 
Yeah, never mind the fact that Seattle is basically eternally sinking into the Puget Sound, so they've got a... I shouldn't say sinking, I should say sliding into the Puget Sound. So uh, so what would that look like in, in a future where the where the land erupted? I, I don't think Seattle would exist in, in Shadowrun's backstory. Yeah, because there's like four volcanoes just in Washington State that are all really not all that terribly distant from... Uh, was a cascade range and they're not terribly distant from Seattle and those four blew at the same time that would be a really big shakeup in the Seattle area yeah good point uh, the if if you accept the premises of Shadowrun's backstory then yeah th this whole area would pretty much be destroyed by um, several volcanoes and a tidal wave so that, and that, I find that fascinating I'm wondering what that would look like uh, I'll put it to you this way. Back when I had a house in Redmond, uh, I joked that if the big earthquake hit, I would inherit beachfront property. I'm just, I'm just thinking that would be a really cool, like, uh, location for a movie or TV show or even comic book, a, uh, 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 or a novel. Is you know where the Seattle, the Seattle we know, all of the buildings and stuff are like all of a sudden under like ten feet of water 15 20 feet of water so the first two stories are underwater and, and they're just poking up out of the um poking up out of the water that would that would be cool uh as far as like an interesting uh setting to explore um, now that we need, a, we, we, well that's that's a good idea because now we could set that up if we stock the seattle underground the the famous city beneath the city if we stock that with gold uh, piles, then we can send spelunkers in to the group <laughs> Seattle. We should do that. We should we should plant we should bury treasure in Seattle in various places, just so that after the apocalyptic earthquake, people can dig it up. Um. So at, at your convention, uh, is there anything new or exciting in board games that you saw, or other games, whatever? Other games, interesting stuff. I played. I haven't played anything new yet. I tried a new. Uh, I tried a new variant of terraforming Mars, uh, where we used uh, an open market to purchase cards instead of a drafting or, or a random draw. Um, that that took away some of the randomness uh, to the game, uh, and added lots of information to everybody. That was interesting. Um, that's about it so far, and and I almost missed the show because I was up doing a, a midnight game of Shadowhunters, the the best social deduction game ever, uh, and, and that was fun. I played a few weeks ago. Is it Power Company, where you Power Grid? Power Grid, yeah. I played Power Grid. Five people on the German map. Um, oh wow. Five people on the German map is brutal if you're one of the last couple of people to pick a starting spot. That's, yeah, that, that's really, really tough. Um, um, and and plus you, you spend basically two and a half hours just doing arithmetic, nonstop arithmetic. And with, and with five people, you're not going to get what you want. Um, on the German map, there are three places that if you pick one of those, you have a lot of cheap expansion opportunities around you uh and, and the other two people get screwed because you have nothing cheap you have expensive expansion opportunities and the best thing you can do is set up wait for turn two to come when you can have two people in a city and hope to expand quickly then but i i found that by that time um i was so far behind that i was fighting hard just to get to the middle of the pack. Um, and yeah, I still would have finished in second place. Uh, we were playing with a family, dad and a mom and a kid, and then me and some other person. And uh, I did a move very near the end, right? You're, you're getting to trying to get to 15. Uh, and I did a move very near the end that would have delayed the game enough for me to vault up into second place or third place. Um, and the mom deliberately lost because she didn't want to 
didn't want to beat her kid. <laughs> she didn't want to make oh. her kid. I'm like, he's nine. He's he's got to learn how this goes anyway. <laughs> I had a lot of inefficient high capacity power plants, and I bought fuel to fill all of them, and then I bought all the other fuel I could store in them. And if she had bought her quota of fuel, the kid would have gotten squished because he couldn't have had enough fuel to supply his city. So um, if it had ended that turn, I would have come in second, which I thought was, you know, that was to me a victory is like leaping from back of the pack, brutal, no starting places to second place. I would have counted that a victory. Yeah. That's that's one of the great fun things about Power Grid. They've got that mechanic where the person in the back can vault themselves to the front if they play smart. Yeah. So, so that was that was a, a brutal game. I'm like, that's a lesson learned there. For those of you that play Power Grid, if you want to play on the German map, don't play with five people. Uh, it, it'll it'll really crush two of them. Um, so I, I had an interesting thing happen this week that is just really. I don't know. I don't know what to feel. It's like infuriating and, and also bizarre. Um, Netflix is starting to include ads or, or testing. They're testing out ads for their original series because people aren't watching them. The reason why people aren't watching them is because by and large, they're crap. Netflix makes a lot of garbage. Um, they don't sound interesting. They're not really interesting when you watch them. And there's way too much filler. Um, Netflix executives have misinterpreted binge watching and they try to make all series one long movie, like an 18 hour, a 13 hour movie. And it just doesn't work, does not work. So they want, they think their problem is that they're not telling enough people about their original series and they want to get around it by sticking ads in for everything else. Amazon Prime does it. Um, and Netflix now they want to start it. So I'm hanging out on Twitter. And I see a meme float by about Netflix ads. And I hadn't heard about it. And so I thought, oh, okay, well, I, I just want to pass the word along. Literally, that's all I thought was this two-second, oh, I want to pass the word along. I saved the meme. I sent it out on other platforms, not Twitter. On Twitter, I just retweeted the original tweet. I'm not trying to pirate anything. Um, and, you know, people saw it. They commented on it. Um, they retweeted it. Uh, they reposted it a few times. And that was it on every platform other than Facebook. Okay. <laughs> on Facebook, as of today, which is a week later, because um, I originally sent it out on the uh, 18th of August. So it's a week later. It has 33,500 shares. Huh. Wow. This, and all I did originally was just tweet out this image. I didn't even stick anything on it. And later, after it hit like 20,000 shares, I got kind of guilt, feeling guilty. I'm like, I did not mean to steal this guy's meme. I didn't mean to like present it as if it were my own work. So I went back and added a stolen meme tag. 33,500 shares, 1,100 comments, and 14. 1,500 responses. I'm not bragging. This is not a humble brag. This is nothing to do with bragging because I have nothing to brag about. This literally took me less than a minute of thought, oh, I need to send this out to my followers so they know this is coming. Save, you know, post. And then it does this, and I'm like, the most hilarious thing, though, is apparently it got shared out into normie Facebook and then pass that into anti-corporate Facebook. And I've been getting a lot of people who are following me on Facebook just because of this. And it's hilarious to watch. Like I'll get, you know, many people follow me in a day and then I'll go back the next day and like half of them have unfollowed me. Because this is an absolutely terrible introduction to what my Facebook is like. If you expect everything else to be like this, you're going to be woefully disappointed. I just, it is bizarre and puzzling and 
also hilarious. And every time I go to Facebook, I've got tons more notifications that all these normies have, have shared this. I'm just like, you know, whatever. Do do what you do. Uh, but something that took literally no thought other than just, oh, I should send this out. It's got 33,000 shares. So That's the power of the memes, man. <laughs> it's just, uh, yeah. So... Um, I just wanted to to catch about that a little bit. It's like just bizarre to me. So, but anyways, that is true. I have a list of things I wanted to talk about today, and we actually haven't even got gotten to them until just that right now, uh, half an hour into the show. Hey, this uh, is a good show. You were saying something before the show when we were in the green room about movies. I know you. You told me that you wanted to. You went to see a movie, and and I that surprised me because I do occasionally look at the movies that are out to see. Hey, I'm in the mood to see a movie. What's out? And there's been nothing, nothing but trash for months. It's as if the movie studio said, "Well, you know, Avengers: Infinity War is out. Let's just we're not even going to try this summer." We're not going to do anything. We're not going to release anything great. We're just going to just let it go. It's kind of depressing. The the number of good movies that have been released is uh, it's not large. Let's just put it that way. It is not a large number. If I may venture into dark humor for a moment, maybe any everybody making good movies got me too this year. Oh, oh! <laughs> let's let's get back that past that for a second. Okay. Anyway, um, so you saw something terrible. I mean, I, I I'm sorry. I'm I'm sort of biasing myself here. I, I I'm just assuming it was terrible. I saw something that was amusingly awful. Is how I would describe it. Okay. It's called AXL, and halfway through the movie. Um, the AXL stands uh, for uh, you know, like Attack Exploration Logistics. Uh, it's a military robot. It's a robot built for the military. Um, but halfway through the movie, I just thought it. it the title reminded me of ASL. Um, and ASL is a question people used to throw out on chat rooms about ten years ago. It was age, sex, location, right? You'd say, oh, ASL check. So you could see who was in the room. Um, I, I don't know if it's current. I don't spend time in these places. It was a meme. It got passed along to me through the power of memes. Um, but that's really, really bad when halfway through a movie, I'm trying to figure out what the L in ASL was. Because I remember age. I remember sex. I, I didn't know what the L was. I couldn't remember what the L was. Uh, <laughs> instead of watching the movie, I mean, watching the movie, but, you know, I'm kind of distracted by this ASL thing. Um, that's a bad title. That should not have been their title. Um, here's the movie in a, in a nutshell. Um, absolutely a concise description of the movie, which will tell you everything that happens in the movie. There will be no surprises. It is Karate Kid meets Short Circuit. No disassemble. Karate um, Kid is is Ali Sheedy in it? No, she's not. Um, All right, it's it's or if you want to pick any other nineteen eighties sports movie, you know the cliches, right? Can you recite the cliches of the sports movie? Oh, I I don't know them by heart, but they, okay. you've got to have a training montage. You've got to have there's a uh, poor underdogs. Yeah, the, the underdogs. The underdogs. They're poor and they're. Fighting to win this sport with heart. And then on the other side... Because they're not big or strong or fast, but they're scrappy. On the other side, there's the rich asshole, right? <clears throat> yeah. Who's got all the money and all the things and is winning. Um, and he's also a complete jerk-off. And probably his coach and other parents and everybody associated with him are jerk-offs because they're the bad guys. Um. 
and then they go and, and, and have it out. And then like a third of the way into the film, they completely chuck. He's in BMX racing, motorbike racing, not pedal bikes, motorbike racing. Um, and then, so we have this setup of the sports movie. And then a third of the way through, they throw it out and shift over to Short Circuit. This robot, it looks like a giant dog. It looks like the scariest dog in the world because it's huge. And it's a robot, and it's got not just big teeth, but these grinders in its mouth. And you're like, wow. So not only can you bite somebody's arm off with those stainless steel fangs, you can also grind up the pieces and spray blood and, and flesh all over the battlefield because that wasn't scary enough. Um, this robot dog escapes from a lab and it, it goes and finds our BMX hero and becomes nice for him and protects him. And then the security forces of the lab come for him. And then the military comes for him. And that's the movie. Wow. This Back. dog, <laughs> it's awesome. This, <laughs> this dog has a laser projector built into its forehead that it uses, and I'm not making this up. This is a Bumblebee subplot. You remember the first Transformers movie, right? It came out 12 years ago. Megan uh, Fox. Vaguely, yeah. Okay. Bumblebee, who's the car takes time off from saving the planet to help his new owner hook up with a hot chick. Okay, yeah. That's the Bumblebee subplot. Well, they actually have the robot, the killer, brutal, massacre military robot stops to help his new owner hook up with a hot chick. Wow. So how does 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 he impress her with his his bone grinders in, in his jaw? What he does, he has this projector that can project movies on a wall and stuff. And so what he does is he uses it as a disco ball. I am not making this up, and then starts playing music out of the speakers in his head. He analyzes the pulse rate, and all of these things of his owners to deduce that they are attracted to each other. And so he sets the mood. He plays makeout music for his owner. This is, this is core subroutines uh, deliberately put in to the uh, AI by the designers of this vicious combat Metal dog. Yes, we're, we're gonna make we're gonna make a a a vicious combat robot dog, but also we're gonna teach him to understand people's feelings and how to manipulate their emotions. <laughs> and, and that's a thought that occurred to me in the movie. By the way, it was a thought. It was a thought that was explored more in depth in Ex Machina, which is if you're going to make a robot look like a dog then what you would want to do is try to play on people's emotions if it was doing an infiltration mission, like you send the dog behind enemy lines or whatever, but then you should make it look like an actual dog and not just this big robot monstrosity. Um, I was kind of thinking of that, that robots, if what they wanted to do was infiltrate and destroy a society, because every single moment in the movie where he's dealing with this dog, you're thinking, you know what? In reality, if this robot was real, it would have just torn his arm off right there. It would have just torn his throat out right there. It would have just jumped on and crushed all his bones right there because this is a combat dog in combat mode and, and in kill mode. And the fact that he didn't get killed, I just I, I started counting the times where he would have gotten murdered um, by this dog. And I'm thinking, dude, you're an idiot. You should run, run, run away. But he didn't run away because it looked like a dog and it was whimpering and it needed help and all this stuff. And you're like, man, look, I don't care how cute the dog is making itself seem. Inadvertently, it wasn't part of its programming. You, 
don't make friends with the giant metal combat monstrosity dog, okay? Um, Seems a little far-fetched. It's bad life advice to make friends with random rampaging robots who have slipped the leash of their masters and are now out in the wild doing whatever the hell they want. Bad idea. Not your friends. Um, the, the, there's so many cliches in this movie. This movie is just cliche after cliche piled on top of each other. See, the thing is, that could be fun. If you played it straight, if you did, uh, if you had a good writer who knew human emotions and stuff, this writer does not know human emotions. He doesn't know how real human beings act. He doesn't know how to build a scene where he, real human beings act, and he doesn't know how to arrange a sequence of scenes where human beings act. And so people just do weird things because all he can do is take cliches and have them act like this one cliche for a short period of time and then stick another cliche so they act bizarrely different and then stick another cliche so they act bizarrely different. It's really distracting. Um, you just, it makes no sense. Uh, it, here's, here's how cliched the movie is. The cliche about robots and movies, and we can go back to iRobot with Will Smith. Um, robots and movies are helpfully color-coded with shining lights for your convenience. Right? Yeah. The robots in Will Smith, they glowed red when they went evil. All the robots in the Matrix glow red because they're evil. Very seen, convenient. Seen the, and, and when they go good, when they're good robots, then they're glowing blue, right? Blue uh -huh. for good, red for I'm going to kill you. So the eyes of this big, massive robot dog change color from red to blue based on whether yeah. he is or isn't going to kill you. But then that's how you know it's safe to pet the metal bone grinder dog. Yeah. Um, at one point, the bad guy, the rich jerk kid, um, gets a bunch of gasoline. Actually, gets a little bit of gasoline and a weed removal flamethrower. They use a flamethrower to burn off the weeds on the track Apparently, that's what they do in this movie. I have no idea if they do that in real life, you know. Huh. Um, and he goes to kill the dog with it. Well, let me just step out of the movie for a second. If you've got a brutal, murdery attack robot who is on the loose, has no command and control, is just out there doing random things, what you should do is destroy it. Sure. Disable it somehow. Disable it somehow. That's the right thing to do. So despite the fact that the movie makes it so that you want to hate this guy, he's doing the right thing. Now, morally, the right thing. Practically, it's stupid because he's going to get... His friends are going to get messed up. Um, the kid, the hero, quote-unquote hero, uh, told the dog that he can't hurt the you know rich jerk and so he's safe but all his friends were around him filming this for youtube they're not safe uh so his friends could kill could have messed up but he's safe he uses his flamethrower to cook the dog and in just a very short period of time the dog dies it gets completely wrecked um that's not a spoiler i guess maybe it is a spoiler but it's only about halfway through the movie and they you know have to rebuild the dog and get it back anyway so that's a plot complication but the other thing I was thinking is, okay, A, he's A, he shouldn't be confronting the dog. B, he's morally correct, but practically, as a practical matter, stupid. And C, what kind of brutal Terminator massacre combat bone-grinding missiles on the back wireless hacking I didn't mention that. It hacks things wirelessly. I'll get back to that. A uh, disco ball dog, combat billion dollar dog, is killed by a few seconds of flames. That 
seems like it's really <laughs> fragile. A little, little bit of a design flaw. Maybe that wasn't part of their uh, quality testing when they developed the giant uh, combat dog. What kind of combat dog can be taken out of the equation by an unarmored 18-year-old kid with a weed removal flamethrower? That seems like a problem to me. Like, you have a billion-dollar stealth fighter that can be shot down and destroyed by a kid with a cap gun? That would seem to me to be a design flaw. Yeah, they, they should have, uh, instead of spending all that money on... on heart rate detection and disco ball projection, they, they probably should have done something about armoring his components. Um, the dog hacks things wirelessly. In That's the middle of nowhere, he can get a wireless connection to the internet. Um, they go to a gas station at one point to refill their truck so they can move on, and they don't have any money for the gas pump, so the dog wirelessly hacks the gas pump as one does. That's great, because not only is he a vicious killing machine and, and a, a karaoke machine, but if you are in the middle of nowhere, you can use him as a wireless hotspot. Yes. <laughs> very, very versatile, this dog. Now, right next to the gas pump, maybe this is a thing in, in California. I don't know. It's not a thing where I live. Right next to the gas pump is an ATM. Not against the wall of the outside of the convenience store, inside the convenience store, right next to the gas pump is that an ATM. Not normal. Um, not normal where I come from. Because why would you put an ATM in a place where it's going to be frequently blocked by vehicles where, you know, if you park correctly to fill your gas, you won't be able to get into the ATM machine easily anyway, and then no one else will either. It, it, you wouldn't do that. I don't think it's real. I think it's they made this up for the movie. So guess what the dog does? Um, gonna guess he's gonna get a bunch of cash. He gets a bunch of cash. He wirelessly hacks the ATM machine to spray out $20 bills. And so the kids just and this is where like the writer didn't doesn't know how to human write. The kids just grab the cash and wave it and laugh. Like, don't even think about they're stealing, you know, $1,000 or $2,000 and drive off. It's like, okay, if they're going to be the kinds of kids who are happy with stealing $2,000, that should have been established earlier. And as they are, they might have been able to say, look, we needed this gas. So we, you know, the dog hacked the gas. So we got the gas. And then just not be cool with the cash. Um and leave it there or take it in and give it to the cash station or gas station or whatever. It, or, or the ATM machine shouldn't have just been in there. It was stupid to add. It was pointless because the cash never comes back. It doesn't matter. You never see it again. It doesn't affect the rest of the movie. It's just a waste of time, a wasted plot point. It confuses our characters. Who are they? Are they moral? Or are they immoral? No, they're just inconsistent. They're just randomly stacked together out of these little moments. The guy who was writing it thought, okay, we'll have him hack the, you know, we'll have him hack the the gas uh, gas pump. And then and then he can hack the ATM machine. It's like, oh, that's a cool thing. We'll stick it in there, whether it made sense or whether it made sense or not. Um, you mean they just tried to, it was just supposed to be a gag and, and it left you scratching your head instead. Yeah, I mean, it's just supposed to be, oh, here's something cool the dog can do, except we just saw him do it like a minute before. He hacked the gas pump. Okay, we know he can wirelessly hack. It doesn't uh, It doesn't increase the span of his abilities to have him also wirelessly hack the ATM machine. So whatever was intended to reinforce it didn't. It did not advance the plot. It didn't advance the characters. It, it was absolutely meaningless. It was a complete mistake. They should have cut it out in editing. They should have caught it in editing and just not put it into the movie. Mm. Um, the movie was made obviously on a very, very tiny budget, and you could 
and this isn't necessarily bad. Oh, schlock. I've got to talk about schlock. Let me, so let me do this first. This isn't necessarily bad where they had longer cuts that stayed on the characters longer, that moved more slowly than usual. They weren't really frenetic. That's a good thing. But they had strange jumps in the plot where you would expect like a 10-second or a 20-second shift or event to let you know what was happening. And so the movie made these confusing little jumps because they didn't have the money to do the setup for just 20 seconds of film to kind of smooth it out. So it was good in one sense. They had longer shots, which more movies need to move back towards. But it was bad in another sense. They had to admit a lot of things. So schlock. This movie is a sports movie plus, you know, short circuit. It's schlock, okay? It's kind of low-grade, audience-pleasing material. But, sure. but you can do good schlock. You can even do great schlock. If you're going to do schlock, at least it's not a pretentious you know, movie that's all up its own butt. But the schlock needs to be done well so that you actually succeed in entertaining the audience, in enthralling the audience. Schlock has to be entertaining. That's the only reason why it exists. And the schlock just wasn't entertaining. Absolutely not entertaining. Yeah. It, it gave me a good half hour of entertainment listening to you uh, pick it apart. I'm, I would be willing to bet that this this time is more entertaining than the movie itself. Um, I was in the movie theater at 11.30 a.m. on the day it was released, and there were three people in the entire theater. And I saw the trailers. I knew it was going to be a bad movie. And the only reason I was there is because uh, we needed something for the show today. So I went and saw the movie. But if I had just been watching it on my own, I wouldn't have gone there. I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have seen a movie this week. Nothing in this week came out, looked good at all. Um, and so, well, it's a bad statement on the state of, state of uh, film these days. But also, it's a fun part of the job. Yeah, there would have been two people on there if I had been doing my thing just as a regular, like movie goer. I don't know. Um, yeah, so we that's NXL. You guys, we we do it for our listeners. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's some, just some small stupid things. AXL is a dog is designed to work with the military, so they're uh, planning on deploying combat dirt bi dirt bikes. So that a soldier can ride along at you know 50, 60, 100 miles with the dog. Um, and at one point the dog is programmed to form a ramp. So it like crouches down its hind legs, its its four legs are up, and it lowers its head to form a ramp. And the guy on the dirt bike, if you can hit the one inch wide or two inch wide strip of where its tail is in the ground, you can ride up the dog and jump over something. Wow. Combat dirt bikes. That sounds like something that some teenager wrote up in the 90s. Oh, you know what would be so cool? I'll oh, mount a machine gun on the dirt bike. That'll be totally rad. Um, Soldiers on dirt, ninjas on dirt bikes. <laughs> there, apparently, this movie uh, followed a, a production path a lot like Pixels. Um, by the way, this movie is far better than Pixels was. So if you want to use that as your baseline, this movie was far, far better than Pixels. There was, and I only know this because it was in the um, it was in the credits of the movie. Um, I stayed to the end of the credits just in case there was a post-credit scene. Uh, there was not. So if you go see this movie, you do not have to, to steal, or you don't have to sit through the credits. There's nothing there. Now, there's nothing there in the movie as, as well, but but just there's nothing after the credits. Apparently, they base this movie on a crowdfunded movie short called Miles. Um, I've never uh, seen it. I've never heard about it. I didn't know about the uh, Kickstarter. 
Um, but it's about a BMX, uh, a dirt biker um, and a robot dog in an off-rolling, you know, in, in California's off-road racing. Um, it made uh, $43,000 on Kickstarter of a $40,000 goal to make this short movie. Um, and then they took this sh short, this crowdfunded short, and made an actual full movie from it. Um, so Pixels got its life off of some internet, a, a YouTube clip about, you know, the Pixels thing. They, they invade, they shoot things, they turn to Pixels and fall. It was a very provocative and interesting video for like three minutes, five minutes, however long the video was. They absolutely should not have tried to make a two-hour Adam Sandler movie from it. Um, and Miles is exactly the same way. They absolutely should not have tried to make a full feature-length film from this. Uh, and in fact, I'm tempted to say that most, um, most movies that are made on Kickstarter probably should not be turned into full feature-length movies. That is, um, that's just my, my hunch. And I only say that because most of them are just not, not very good. And certainly not very good stretched out. There's not enough material. There's not enough um, plot. There's not enough concepts. It, it does not hold up for two hours in the theater. Um, in fact, let me let me see. Uh, hour and 40 minutes. Okay, that's how long the movie was. Hour and 40 minutes. It just does not hold up. It's a six-minute short on Vimeo. Uh, I'll put the link to, uh, to Miles in the description so you can see the short. It does not hold up uh, for an hour and 40 minutes. It just doesn't. Um, That's a strange obsession people have with the full-length film. I'm, I mean, the there's been so many great little shorts put on the web. YouTube's full of, you know, cheap, no-budget shorts. You don't have to do a full two-hour thing. You can do a nice little 10-minute sketch or, or funny 30-minute video. Uh, I don't understand the obsession with trying to turn your little project into a full feature movie when you can just do uh, a short video and get uh, lots of exposure. You know, a lot of people are going to see every, everything on the internet. You don't need to get distributed in movie theaters. We're getting a lot of cardboard sounds from your end of the mic. Is there? Oh, sorry. I'll see if I can fix that. <laughs> I'm, I'm just wondering if there's something going on. Are you being attacked? Are you being held hostage by a, a, a cardboard-wielding manic robot that has escaped from some government lab? You know, say, I love the emoji movie if, if you're safe. <laughs> That's a trap. I'd rather die. <laughs> so that's what I would expect you to say. That's what most normal, decent people would say. Somebody in the chat's asking, by the way, uh, is it better than the Emoji Movie? Yes, it absolutely is better than the Emoji Movie. Um, so, uh, oh, oh, I want to take this back to, take this back to Crunchyroll, right? Take this back to High Guardian Spice. Uh, in the comments, Bradford Walker, who's on the show just a couple weeks ago, says that uh, Star Trek Discovery has been revealed to be being based on bad Tumblr fanfic. Huh. Not surprised. Um, all right. Well, this movie was not based on bad Tumblr fanfic, um, but boy golly, it... it absolutely could have been um you know the thing is here and i want to say this too about schlock this could have been a really entertaining schlocky movie you actually could take this premise and do something with it you could have made a good 
movie. And that seems like a bold statement, but it could have been entertaining. It was never going to be Saving Private Ryan, and it doesn't have to be. It could have been better done. Um, better writing, better characterization, even under the limitations of a short budget. Once again, we circle back around to one of my common themes with movies on the show. Um, with special effects that are so fab fabulous and fantastic, it's the story that matters. And I want to reassure you, the special effects in this movie were great. They, they were on par with special effects nowadays. Even a tiny low-budget movie based on a kick-started short, indie short, when it goes to be made for the theaters, can have great special effects. It did not notice somebody looked fake to me. That did not notice somebody looked green-screened at any point. Obviously, you know it's computer-animated, but it didn't look bad. So with the special effects being on point and with a concept that could have worked. And maybe you would need to rework, like, okay, is it really, can we, is BMX really the best thing to do? Is off-roading really the best thing to do? Maybe we should try this. Maybe we should try that. Whatever. Whatever you have to do. This concept could have worked, and it all comes down to story. The direction was fine. The cinematography was great. Uh, there weren't any bad shots. There weren't any boom mics hanging in. You know, this is not crappy um movie making it's solid professional movie making what brings it down is not the budget it even has uh the the love interest in the movie um is someone named becky g she was also in the new power rangers um and the actor it has thomas jane in it um so they, they hired, uh, and it also has Ted McGinley, who was the handsome husband for the last few seasons of, um, oh, Al Bundy's show uh, on Fox. Why can't I remember the name of that? Help me out here, man. I'm, I'm sinking. Uh, Married with Children. Married with Children, yeah. He was the ha handsome husband of the next door neighbor for the last few seasons of Married with Children. So they have, you know, actual... Uh, actors in it who aren't bad actors. I mean, there are some clunky performances from the corporate CEO. But even with a low budget, they had everything they needed. They could have made a good movie. They could have made good schlock. And instead, they made bad schlock. Um, and it's tragic, and it all comes down to the script. It all comes down to the story. In an age where fantastic, mind-blowing special effects, or what would have been fantastic, mind-blowing special effects, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, are available even to tiny budget films. In that era, special effects no longer matter. When competence in cinematography and other things no longer are, are no longer at a super premium, they're no longer scarce, then that no longer matters. That all cancels out. And what you're left with is story. And where all of these movies that fall down where they fall down, it's always in the story. The story was not thought out of enough, or the people making it didn't grasp storytelling, or they didn't know how to uh, portray human characters. So that, that's my thesis. And I, it only became a thesis after I saw it happen time and time again with big mega budget movies. Um, so, yeah, it. Uh, it was a letdown. It could have been good schlock, and instead it was bad schlock. Thank you for, once again, taking that bullet for the rest of us and warning us of the bad schlock. Uh, by the way, folks, I've included a link to Miles, the short the movie was based off of, and a robot vision visual effects breakdown of Miles of the completed short uh, in the description of the video. So you can check that out if you're uh, interested in seeing the short movie that this was based off of. Um, so yeah, that's that's everything I have about that movie. And I've got pages more of notes, but uh, I think I've covered most of the important bits. Um, Sounds good. Do you have anything else to talk about before we head off into the wild blue yonder? Well, before I say goodbye, bye, I wanted to shout out, uh, make a shout out to a uh, friend of the show, Bradford C. Walker. Uh, 
check out our previous episode with him on it. His uh, Star Knight Saga Kickstarter ends today, August 25th. So if you guys are listening live, be sure to check that out. Um, with that said, um, I just, I just want to say thanks to everybody listening, everybody in the chat who's hanging out. Um, it's a lot of fun chatting with you and hanging out with these guys on a Saturday. Um, and I want to say thanks to everybody who came and listened to the show live, participated in the chat. Those of you who want some uh, more in-depth information on anime and on Crunchyroll in the background and stuff like that, uh, by all means, please read uh, read the chat. Uh, they discussed uh, the differences between Netflix and Amazon and, and what uh, Crunchyroll is doing. And then we talked about uh, a whole bunch of uh, other things. It's really interesting, and it's a, it's a good complement to the show. Um, so check that out if you're on, you know, whenever you're listening to the show, come back, read the chat, and then by all means, you know, if you can, plan to drop, drop in sometime and, and participate. Um, we are available on YouTube.com slash GeekGab. Um, about every week we do a show, so you can see all of our previous shows stacked up. We are also available on SoundCloud.com, on the Google Play Store, and on the iTunes Store at least until we're banned for rampant wrong think. Just do a search for Geek Gab, and uh, you can enjoy our show, subscribe to it, listen to it on the device of your choice. Uh, some people listen on their way to work in the car to the podcast. Uh, one of our uh, regulars, uh, John Mollison, is listening to us while he's out running, um, apparently through uh, the disaster-ridden wastelands of uh, Hawaii, which has had both a volcanic eruption and a hurricane in the last couple of months. So, uh, you know, warm feelings and prayers for all of the people living in Hawaii. Good luck with all of that. Um, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We are leaving you for today. But don't you worry. Don't you fret. We will be back.